this is a special day in the life of the church, not just Central Baptist Church, but the church as a whole. This is uh, 50 days after Easter Sunday, 50 days after Passover. This is Pentecost Sunday, and I'm, I'm one Baptist that's not afraid to say the word Pentecost this morning. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, the rest of you either aren't Baptist or you're afraid to say Pentecost, but Pentecost is in the Bible. And this is the 50th day, this is the Sunday that's celebrated as Pentecost Sunday. Through the centuries, it's sometimes been referred to as the birthday of the church, because it is on this day that the life of the church that Christ had been forming through his, through his earthly ministry and preparing for, it's when that church came into physical existence, and that is the manifestation of it. So this is a happy birthday to the church, but on that day, God gave a special birthday present to the church. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so on this day, we celebrate that. In fact, Gregory Nazianzus, who is one of the early church fathers, one of the great Cappadocians, he, he called this the day of the Spirit, the day of the Spirit. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 if you're not already there. Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at a few verses in this chapter in order to understand what takes place in the next chapter in Acts chapter 2. A journalist one time, a, a newspaper young reporter, was once asked to go and talk to the, the oldest lady in the town. She was up well over 100 years old, and he wasn't quite sure what all to say to her. And so as he sat there talking with her, he said, I see that your, your birthday is on May the 5th. He said, um, may I ask what year? And she looked right back at him, and she said, every single year. We celebrate, we can celebrate the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to say to us this morning. What days do we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church every single Sunday? We celebrate. This is not just any, well, once a year we get together and talk. But this is the day in which God chose sovereignly in His plan for the church to be birthed and for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be given. Pentecost is the name, it's the Greek name of an Old Testament feast that was given for the people of Israel, the Feast of Weeks, seven, seven weeks after the Passover. He said, number seven weeks, seven days, 49 days, on the next day would be the Feast of Weeks. This feast was a feast of harvest. It was the earliest harvest. It was in the springtime, and it was the last of the first fruits. And so they would bring the grain. They would bring that into the presence of God, and it happened yearly, and people, would, the men of the nation would come together. And this is happening in this particular moment. We will see people who have gathered in Jerusalem at the temple from all around the known world. They have come. They are Jewish primarily, some Gentile proselytes, and they have come together to celebrate this day of Pentecost. It simply means 50. This feast was significant. It's significant for the people of Israel. It's significant for us. On an agricultural level, the Feast of Weeks was a reminder to the people of God of God's providence in their lives, that God was the one who honored His covenant by giving them crops and giving harvest. I'm glad for the providence of God in our lives. I'm glad that He is overseeing what is taking place in our lives, and what a great day to remember that and to celebrate that. But also on a spiritual, on a memorial level rather, the memorial was over time the people of Israel began to celebrate um, the Feast of Weeks. They believed that that was the time when God had given the law and the covenant to Moses. And so they celebrated the establishment of the Old Covenant. Not old for them, but what they saw as the Mosaic Covenant. 
They celebrated that on the, on the Feast of Weeks. And so it was a memorial of that. But also on a spiritual level, it looked forward to what God was going to do on this particular day. It was no accident that it was this day that Christ established the church. The manifestations that take place, the manifestation of God's power on Mount Sinai of wind and fire that are evidenced in Acts chapter 2 as God is establishing a new covenant. The Shekinah glory of God that came down and rested on the mountain when Moses was receiving the law and the covenant. The Shekinah, the presence of God is manifested in Acts chapter 2. And so these manifestations are pointing toward this. But there's a distinction in the Old Testament. They brought down, Moses brought the law. I love what John Chrysostom, one of the, one of the early church pastors, wrote about this. He said, the apostles did not come down from the mountain carrying like Moses tablets of stone in their hands, but carrying the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And that's the difference between the, new, the old covenant and the new. He says they had become by His grace a living book. Someone has defined this. I love this definition, this explanation of Pentecost. Pentecost is, or the meaning of Pentecost, is God forming or establishing His church with the power of the Spirit in order to glorify Him among all nations. It is God forming His church, equipping them with the Holy Spirit to glorify Him among all nations. I want you to see these verses in Acts chapter 1 because in order to understand Acts chapter 2, you need to understand these verses. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 8. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus. This is Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he refers back to it. Of all that Jesus, here's a key word, began both to do and teach. What he did in the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus had been doing, was to be continued by the apostles until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. When did they hear this, and what was this promise about? The next verse is going to tell us that the promise was about the Holy Spirit. And he promised this in John chapter 16 when he said, I will send another comforter unto you. That's the promise that he's referring to here, and it will be fulfilled in chapter 2. He says in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon ye, you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And what's going to transpire in the time between these verses and into chapter 2. In this account, we see three things that I want you to focus on with me this morning. I want you to see, first of all, the plan of Pentecost. Thinking about that definition or that explanation, what, was the, what is the meaning of Pentecost? It is God establishing His church, equipping them with the Holy Spirit for His glorification among all nations. The plan for the, of Pentecost is the foundation of the church. 
God's plan for His work in this world is not an organization. There are some wonderful organizations in our world. There are some wonderful Christian organizations in our world. But God's plan for His work in this world is the New Testament church, the blood-bought church that we sang about and talked about just a moment ago. That is the work that He does. This is the celebration of the New Covenant. The old Pentecost, the old Feast of Weeks, was a celebration of first fruits of harvest. This is a celebration of the first fruits of the church, the thousands that would be saved on the day of Pentecost. I cannot imagine what it must have been like. There were hundreds of believers. There were hundreds of followers of Christ already. But to see over 3,000 saved on the first day of Pentecost, on the first day of this new first fruits. In the Jewish understanding, it was the establishment of the old covenant. But now we see here the establishment of a new covenant between God and and his people. I am so thankful that I am no longer under the old covenant. It was a good covenant for God's time. It was given by God. It was ordained by God. It was a good thing. But we have a new and a better way in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are no longer under the law, but we are guided and we are empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the holiness and the work that God does in our lives. The church is not a social club. The church is not just merely a weekly gathering of like-minded religious people. It's not just a place of shelter for believers in a fallen world. Let me pause a minute and say, we have got to be clear about what the church is for. The church meets many of our emotional, our spiritual, our physical needs. But the church is not about meeting my needs. The church is about exalting Jesus Christ. Look, the church provides a great spirit and a sense of community. And I hope that whenever anyone walks through our doors, that they are welcomed warmly and they feel a part and they are welcomed into the fellowship of our church. And if they don't know Christ, they know His love through us. But the purpose of the church is not just to provide a place of community. There are other groups where you can experience community. Good night. Back in the 80s, you know, you you could go to the local bar. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And that that was a need of community, and the world tapped into that, and some still do. But the church is not just about providing community. I was recently watching a thing about a a church that was racked by scandal. And as I watched this, I began to notice some tendency. There was a lot of talk about the pastor giving a performance on Sunday. There was a lot of talk about, boy, let the showers fall, Lord, send the rain. Y'all aren't going anywhere for a while. I'm just going to anchor down and preach on this a little bit. Send the showers of blessings, Lord. Pour out the Spirit like that rain. They talked about performance. The singers giving a performance. And the people that came, I felt felt at home there. Should we feel at home at church? Absolutely. But that was the only thing. Look, I love feeling at home at church. I love feeling welcomed. But that doesn't matter. I don't come to church just to feel welcomed and feel at home. I come to exalt God and glorify God and worship Him. It is Christ that is to be exalted. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when He has come, He will not speak of Himself. He will speak of Me. He will point others. He will point you to Christ. So all the glory in the church has to be to Christ. It has to be to God. The church is not for those things. It is the 
church is to be a God-honoring, Christ-following, Spirit-empowered, gospel-proclaiming presence in this world. The church gathers to delight in fellowship. We do that. When the church gathers for a common experience of worship, for mutual edification, for a united expression of praise to God, and for a visual embodiment of grace, but above all, as the church comes together, we come to exalt God and exalt Jesus Christ. But the church doesn't just assemble, the church also scatters. We come together and we go out. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. The church is in this world to do the will of God, to accomplish the work of God, to express worship of God, to be the witness to God in this world. Someone described it to me some years ago, but a lot of people misunderstand this. He said they, they think of the church as a cruise ship. Some of you go on cruises and enjoy that sort of vacation. And on a cruise ship, you sit on the deck and it's everybody's role. The crew is there to serve you and to meet your needs. If you want something to drink, they bring you something to drink. If there's food, man, there's food everywhere. They're, they're there for you. The church is not a cruise ship on a vacation. It is a battleship in a war. And every one of us on the ship has a role to play. We have a job to do to accomplish the work that has been assigned, the orders that have been given. Every one of us has a part. You know, they say that there's the 80-20 principle that 80% or 20% of the people do about 80% of the work. And I hope that's not true of us. But in many churches, that is the case. Why? Because there's a cruise ship mentality. This is a battleship. This is a war that we are in. We are in spiritual warfare. And we have been called to engage and to get involved and to take our part in what God has called the church to do. Pentecost is about the formation, the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. But it's not just about that, it's about how it's going to happen. The power of Pentecost we see in this passage and in chapter 2, it is the church equipped by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's gift to the church, the bounty, all that He does. Someone has said that the Holy Spirit, for many people, is sort of like our pituitary gland. Some of y'all didn't even know you had a pituitary gland. You're probably amazed that I could even pronounce it. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it right. I hope I spelled it right. They said it's like the pituitary gland. You, you know it's there. You're glad you got it. And you don't want to lose it, but you're not really sure what it does. And you treat the Holy Spirit that way. We know the Holy Spirit's there, but we don't know what He's there for. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, He does a few things in the life of believers. The Holy Spirit does the same works that he did in the Old Testament, but there's something that's different. In the Old Testament, he came on specific people at specific times for specific tasks. He was not on everybody, and he did not come at all times. He would come, and he would accomplish the task, and he would leave. That's why you have people such as Samson who are, have the Holy Spirit, have the Spirit of God come on them. Samson is not a role model. Samson is not a, a, a godly Christian. Samson is what you get when after a whole generation of generation of generation, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And God needs somebody to lead Israel, and the best that he can find in the whole country is Samson. It's really sort of where our country is now. When everybody does what is right in their own eyes, eventually you get to the point where the best you can come up with is a Samson. But the Spirit of God would come on Samson. 
for certain tasks and certain that's that's the Old Testament. At this point, coming up to chapter two, that's the only way anyone has ever experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus says, you will be baptized for the first time, they begin to experience the Holy Spirit in His fullness. Instead of selective, temporary, partial empowerment, believers now receive universal and permanent and complete infilling of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we get to have in the New Testament. That's the gift of God to the church. That's why we can celebrate, not just on Pentecost Sunday, but every single day of our Christian life, that the Holy Spirit is in us. He has come to indwell us. And from this point, from Acts chapter 2, every person who trusts Christ is baptized by the Spirit of God. We have all been baptized into one body by one Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians. And the minute I got saved for a one-time, unrepeatable experience, I was baptized, I was immersed into the body of Christ. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but also the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And it is a permanent indwelling. And He lives inside of us. And that's what they got to experience first here, and then throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament age. What is this work that He does in us? First of all, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. John chapter 16 and verse 8, when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the sinner of his need of salvation, that he is a sinner headed toward judgment. And then He comes to us as believers, and He convicts us of the sin in our lives. That moment you begin to feel a conviction over something you have done or something you should not have done, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. People say, let your conscience be your guide. Don't listen. Don't let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience can be seared with a hot iron, the Bible says. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide. Let Him be the one that convicts you. And let me just say that if you can sin and not feel some sense of conviction over it, then you need to examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and the child of God cannot commit sin without the Holy Spirit expressing some conviction in their heart over it. The Holy Spirit seals us. Ephesians 1.13, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That speaks of protection. That speaks of ownership. That speaks of authentication that we have in the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells believers. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you don't belong to God. It's as simple as that. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, the comforter. When He comes, He will teach you all things, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 26. He reveals truth to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. He receives the, we receive the Spirit of God that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Holy Spirit guides us, John chapter 16 and verse 13. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Aren't you glad that you have the Holy Spirit, that our Christian life doesn't have to just be wandering aimlessly around. The Holy Spirit guides us, and He guides us into truth. Galatians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. We are simply the fruit bearers. He's the one that produces it. Galatians 5, the love, joy, peace, the full nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of things. Sometimes we need His help, and and there's times we experience situations, and the Holy Spirit brings us the truth from Scripture to remind us of it. 
That's his work. He says in John 14, 26, the comforter shall bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit equips the church and he equips believers in the church with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the self-same Spirit. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4 give various lists of gifts that are given for the administration and the function of the church, the edification of the church, and the proclamation of the gospel. And he's the one that equips us for that work. He empowers us. We saw this in chapter um, Acts 1 and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The Holy Spirit, when He has come upon you, you shall receive power to be what? To be witnesses of me. Ephesians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit fills us. Be filled with the Spirit. That is the life that is governed and guided by the Spirit of God. Would you say that the Holy Spirit is essential to the function of the church? Aren't you glad for the day of Pentecost when God established His church and equipped it with the Holy Spirit? It amazes me that Paul calls the Holy Spirit the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment of our inheritance, just the beginning of what we have in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful. Let me say to you that everything that you or I need as individuals and everything that we do as a church must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be done without the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything that is necessary for living the Christian life comes by the work of the Holy Spirit the power that we need, the guidance that we need, the direction that we need. As a church, we must have the work and the power of the Holy Spirit for us to be anything more than just a group of religiously-minded people gathering together, doing some good deeds. Without the Holy Spirit, the actions of the church are nothing more than the empty workings of our flesh. But with the Spirit, the church becomes more. The church becomes what God has called us to do. Without the Holy Spirit, fellowship is just a get-together. But through the Spirit, it is oneness in the will of God. Without the Spirit, study of the Word is nothing more than indoctrination. But with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, it becomes Christ-forming discipleship. Without the Spirit, our service is merely good deeds. But empowered by the Spirit of God, it becomes God-honoring ministry. Without the Spirit, our witnessing and our sharing of the gospel is nothing more than just proselytizing. We're just getting converts to ourselves. But with the Spirit, it becomes gospel-centered evangelism. Without the Spirit, our worship is nothing more than just religious ritual. And we may feel a tingle up our spine, and we may be moved by the songs. But with the Spirit, when the Spirit is work, it becomes a heartfelt expression of exaltation to the glory of God. Without the Spirit, the church is nothing more than just a group of loosely connected people gathering for religious business. But when the Spirit is at work in us, we become what God intended us to be, in this world, which brings us to the purpose of Pentecost. We've seen the plan of Pentecost as the establishment. Remember, this is, the, this is the, the meaning of Pentecost. God establishing His church, equipping them with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of His glorification before all nations. Luke gives us a list in Acts chapter 2. Do you see it there? Most of the time we skip over these parts because we feel like we just, well, we can't say the words. We don't really know where they are. 
But he begins, Luke begins with this list of people. He begins east of Israel, and he encircles the land of Palestine. These are all Jewish people, but some Gentile proselytes, but they are representatives of the nations that the Lord wants to reach. The key to this list is in verse 5. Do you see it there? There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. This list would sometimes make us think of the list of nations in Genesis chapter 10, where a miracle of languages took place as well. When they began to raise the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God, and God, by miraculous design, confused their languages. And now this confusion of languages, this diversity of languages, is supernaturally overridden by the power of the Holy Spirit as these believers, baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to proclaim the wonderful works of God in the languages, even the dialects of those who are present. How do we hear these men speaking the wonderful works of God in our own tongues? In languages, in dialects. That would mean, that, that, that word dialectone would mean that if you or I were there on the day of Pentecost, we would say something like this. Not just, I hear Peter speaking in English. I hear him proclaiming the gospel in English. We could say even more than, well, I hear him proclaiming the gospel, and it's American English. We can tell a little bit of a difference. If you've ever heard anybody from Great Britain speak English, and you hear an American speak English, it sometimes sounds like it's two different, two different languages. I mean, they get a little hodgy-podgy with their language. But it's even more than that. I could stand there and say, I hear Peter and John proclaiming the message of the gospel and the glorious works of God, and I hear it in Eastern North Carolinian Southern American English. Because let's be honest, there's southern accents and then there's southern accents, amen? I mean, what you sound like in eastern North Carolina is a little different than western North Carolina. And what you sound like in North Carolina is a little bit different than my family down in Georgia. And we all sound different than that bunch of people down in Alabama. We're not even going to talk about them. It's dialect. They heard, they said, we hear what's being said, and they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming the wonderful works. This was not some unknown language or unknown gibberish. They heard what was being said, and it was a message. It was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 28, mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where God said, I will speak of a, with the people of another tongue. I will speak with another language. And it was a message, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews that the message of the gospel that God was now not just at work among the Jewish people, he was going to carry his message that the gospel was for all people everywhere and we continue to believe and proclaim that the gospel is to be freely offered to all people. That is the work of the church. That is the purpose of the church, is the glorification of God among all nations. The gift was for that purpose. They were proclaiming the message. These people would then go back to their nations and begin to proclaim the gospel. That were the beginning. They were not just a sign of what was going to take place they were the beginning of what is going to take place. When I mention all the things that the Holy Spirit does, 
It is easy for us to get so inward focused when we think about the Holy Spirit. When we think about the establishment of the church, it's about me, it's for me. Look, the church does so much, meets so many deep needs in our hearts. The Holy Spirit does so much for us. But let's not forget that Acts 2 is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not an either or. It's not that you pick and choose. We are to help send the message and proclaim the message. The work of the church is to be witnesses where we are and in our region and in our nation and to the uttermost parts of the world. We cannot rest until all nations have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. We continue to proclaim the gospel. We continue to preach the blood of Jesus Christ and the the efficacy of it and the saving power of it and that it washes away our sins. But there are thousands and millions and billions of people who still have not heard. And that is why it is so essential for us as we give and we go to carry the message of the gospel, to proclaim the message, because there are those who have not heard, those that one day will stand before God with us around the throne from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every place on this earth, and we will sing together in worship and praise to the Lamb that was slain and to the Lord who sits, the Creator who sits on the throne. That's what our task is. That is what we are to do. We are to glorify God to all people, proclaim the message of the gospel. Jesus said that whoever would ask for the Spirit would receive the Spirit. Do you remember that passage where Jesus is talking about prayer? And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, your child comes to you and asks for a piece of bread, would you give him a stone? If he asks for something, would you give him a serpent? Would you give him a snake? In other words, you... You know how to give when, a, when your child asks for something necessary, for something that they need, for something that is good. It is a reflection on your heart, the goodness of your heart, that you would give them something good in return, not something evil. He said, even so your heavenly Father will give the Holy Ghost to those who ask Him. In other words, when we come to our heavenly Father recognizing our absolute need for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, for the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives, whether it's as individuals and as a church, when we cry out for the pouring out of His Holy Spirit on us, when we come into His presence, our Heavenly Father is infinitely far better than any earthly father, and He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. And he will give the Holy Spirit. But pastor, wait a minute. Don't we already have the Holy Spirit? Why are we praying and asking for the Holy Spirit? It's not asking for what we already have. He dwells in us. But we are asking and praying for a greater manifestation and a greater experience of the work that he is doing in us. 
to recognize that without him, we can do nothing. That the life that flows through the vine, John chapter 15, I am the vine, near the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will. You'll bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing unless the Holy Spirit is at work in us. For us to cry out, for us to recognize that everything we need to live the Christian life, everything we need to be a disciple of Christ is provided by the Holy Spirit. And to rejoice in that, but above all, to desire His work, to call out for it, to pray for it. It is a prayer that God has guaranteed to answer. He said, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? If you're lost this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you receive the Spirit when you come to Christ for salvation. He indwells you. He lives inside of you. If you are weak in your Christian walk, you're struggling in a moment of whatever situation you're going through in your life, you need to cry out and pray, Lord, I need your Spirit in my life. I need the Holy Spirit to work in me. If you are a mature believer who is flowing and, and functioning in the Christian faith and you are fruitful in your Christian life and you are bearing fruit, you need to understand that that has not happened apart from the work of the Spirit and you will continue to need the work of the Spirit and faithfulness. And the only way to remain faithful is through the enabling of the Spirit. Everything that we need, everything that I need, everything that we do as Christians, as a church, only happens through the work of the Spirit. Nothing of eternal value happens apart from His work. And when we understand that, then we will cry out, we will pray, Lord, as you did on the day of Pentecost, as you did when I got saved, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit. I can't make it through a day. I can't make it through this sermon without the work of the Spirit in my heart and in my mind. I can't make it through the rest of this day. I will not make it through this week without Him. The day of the Spirit. It's more than just celebrating that He was given. It is living as He has been given to us. Father, I pray this morning that you will put within our hearts, far beyond what my feeble words can do, a hunger and a desire. Lord, we as a church need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I, as a Christian, as a pastor, need an outpouring of the Spirit. Lord, I've got the Spirit dwelling in me, but I need a fresh and a greater manifestation and work. Lord, if there's anything in my life that's hindering that work, I pray that you will help me to remove it. Father, I pray that sins will be confessed and things will be put aside so that the Holy Spirit may flow in us and work in us. May our prayer this morning be, Lord, give us the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that that will transform us and change us and empower us to glorify you in this world. We pray 